Uh, I was thinking about the 12 days of Christmas. Emma read to us um, 2 Peter chapter 1. It would be great if you could keep your finger in the page there in 2 Peter. We've just finished the series thinking about the prophets in the Old Testament who foretell Jesus coming. And um, it's interesting for us to ask the question now, as we move towards Christmas, how does the New Testament um, uh, speak about the prophets in the Old Testament? What's their kind of perspective on, on the prophets that we've been thinking about? And uh, I've been drawn to 2 Peter because he talks about prophets. We'll come to that more towards the end. But I was very struck uh, in, in chapter 1. If you look with me at verse 3. Christmas is coming, the giving of gifts. And Peter, a disciple of Jesus, says this. He's speaking about God. God's divine power has given us everything everything we need for life and godliness to our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness in verse 4 he says again through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature as soon as I went to 2 Peter chapter 1 I'm confronted we're confronted by the idea of God giving us something not just something but everything that we need if someone said to you what do you want for Christmas I don't know what your answer would be I think it gets harder to answer that question as you get older Um, maybe you start thinking less about Playstation games and favourite perfumes and wonder about things like if only someone could give me my health back if only someone could give me back that friendship that was broken through some petty argument that happened maybe there's a loved one that you miss and your sense would be if only I could have them back what would you want for Christmas well what's really interesting I think here is that Peter is really saying Don't think about all the things that you lack or that you would like to have. Here is a list of all the things that you already have and own because of Jesus. It's very interesting, isn't it, that human nature always seems to have this sense of craving and and longing. And Peter, sometimes we do need to stop and think, don't we, be reminded that of what we already have and own because of Jesus so I started going through to Peter and making a list of the things that God has given us either explicitly or implied in the text as we have it and when I got to the end I went down the list and counted 12 things and that made me think of the 12 days of Christmas And so, really, today, as we move towards Christmas, I want to think, first of all, about 12 things that God gives. And uh, I hope we'll dwell on some of them a little bit more, some of them we'll skip over. But this is a little overview of 2 Peter, really. And then at the end, I want to think about how that links with what we've been thinking about from the prophets. Okay? Does that make sense? 12 things 
that God gives. Um, maybe I could have wrapped these things up and given them all as presents and you could have opened them. It would have taken ages though, so I've just got them on the screen. Here, here's the first one. The first thing that God gives is the opportunity uh, to know and experience him. And what a great gift that is. In those first few verses there, uh, Peter says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Later on in verse 4, he talks about these precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What an amazing phrase that is. What Peter's really saying is that the secret of everything in life, really, is knowing God accurately and truly. And you know, it's not that I'm not talking about intellectual knowledge here. I'm not talking about how clever someone is. I'm talking about a personal experience of God. You, you know that you could, you know, we can say we know the Queen. We know where she lives. We know what she looks like. But it'd be a different matter altogether, wouldn't it, if the Queen sent you a letter and said, I want you to come to Buckingham Palace for the weekend. I'd like to get to know you. That would be awesome and scary, wouldn't it? There's, there's different ways of knowing things. I've called this experiencing God because this is unique to Christianity. There's a lot of different philosophies and isms and religions in the world. But Christianity is unique in this. That it is not dry head knowledge. But it, Christianity by its very essence is an encounter with the living God. God is not just to be studied with the mind, although that's important. He is to be experienced in the heart and in the life. Isn't it interesting what Peter says in verse 19? Um, when he's talking about the prophets and he describes, he, he says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you'll do well to pay attention to it, he says. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What a way to describe the Christian life. That the morning star, Christ himself, has risen in your heart. You know him. He's precious to you. You've experienced something of participating in the nature of God. Jesus is not just a figure from history, a dead hero from the past, but a risen king who's present. And he's able to communicate something of his presence and goodness and holiness. And spread. What did Paul say in Romans? He says that God, the, the Holy Spirit, has spread his love abroad in our hearts. What was the very last thing that Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew's Gospel? Go into all the world and preach the Gospel, make disciples, and behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. They knew him. He was precious to them. And I think all true believers know something of what that means. This isn't just an intellectual thing. I, I know about Jesus. But actually, I've experienced something of his nearness and presence in my own heart and life. And we'll, we'll talk about this more as we go through. But a true experience of God will always lead to a changed life. 
I think whoever you know in life influences you, don't they? The, the friends you choose, the people you hang out with, they will influence you to a degree. And if you truly experience God, your life will never ever be the same. When you know Jesus, it will change you. John Piper preached a sermon on chapter 1 here, and he said this, The Christian faith is not merely a set of doctrines to be accepted. It is a power to be experienced. It is a tragic thing to ask people if they know the Lord and then have them start listing the things they believe about the Lord. Brothers and sisters, believing things about Jesus will save nobody. The devils are the most orthodox believers under heaven. It is divine power that saves. If the power of God does not flow into your life and make you godly, you are not Christ's. I quote you that because I couldn't really say it better. Godliness comes from knowing and experiencing God. The more you know him, the more you'll be like him. And the thing that marks Christian believers out is that they know God and love him. And there's a real sense of them walking with Jesus in their lives. Only a true Christian really knows what that's like, but what a gift that is. The amazing thing that Peter says here is that this is what he's called you to. I was very struck when we sung that last hymn, and Mary in the garden, and she thinks Jesus is the gardener, and he calls her name Mary, and she recognises him. God wants you. He calls you by name. He calls you to this, for you to know him and love him and experience him. To know God and to experience him is a great gift. Do you know God in that way? Or is it, is it for you some kind of intellectual head thing that's going on? Or do, you, do these words echo in your heart? Can you say, yeah, amen to that. I know him. I've experienced him. I don't know everything about him. But I do know him. He's touched me and called me. That's a great gift. The second thing, oh, we've got 12 to do. And then I want to talk about prophets, so I'll have to be quick. I was going to dwell on some more than others, though, and that was one of the bigger ones. 12 things God gives. Another thing here is escaping evil. What an amazing thing Peter says at the end of verse 4. Not, not only is it a gift to participate in the divine nature, but to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That is an interesting phrase. The word for corruption that Peter uses here is one that you would describe something rotten or rotting like compost. Do you make compost at home? We, we have a big compost bin at home and all the kind of veg goes in it, you know. The, well, not all the veg, we eat some of it. It's like the clippings that we don't just put veg in there for the sake of the compost but you take the lid off and it's rotten Peter says there is rottenness corruption in this world and the source of it is 
human evil desires, selfishness and sin. And I think the idea of escaping is an interesting one as well. I hope you won't misunderstand me when I say this. Sometimes in Christianity we talk rightly about the idea of escaping God's judgment. The Bible talks about fleeing from the wrath to come. The Bible talks about hell as a real place. And we rightly talk about the fact that we need to escape from that horrible end. It's one of the reasons Jesus comes. But Christianity is not just an insurance policy that enables us to escape hell and gain heaven. There is a great need for us to escape the prospect of hell, but Christianity is far more than that. Christianity is also about escaping from the power of selfishness and evil now. The gift of God is to escape evil that is unavoidable and inevitable in this world. The gift of God is to be made good, to be changed and to escape the inevitable pull of selfishness in human nature. It is to be lifted out and above what comes naturally. It is supernatural. I've I've often said to you, a great phrase to remember is that God is not just letting people off, but lifting them up to be what they can be in his strength. Christianity is not just about forgiveness, but it is about escaping evil. It is to be made clean in God's sight and brought to a place of purity instead of the selfishness that smells like compost. God wants to make you good. One of the things that can happen in some religions and philosophies is that there's this idea of reaching such a level of enlightenment that you become sort of absorbed into God. There's a little bit of God in all of us and if we could just find it and we can... That isn't what Peter talks about here when he talks about participating in the divine nature. He's not talking here about becoming God. He's talking about experiencing God and living in the strength of the resources that God gives It is for God to become the very fountain of our lives. God gives you the ability to experience him so that you'll be able to escape not just hell, but sin itself. And what happens when someone is truly converted is that they're changed. Your nature is new. You're not what you were. You're not bound anymore by a sinful past or by a poor upbringing or some bad habit that runs in your family. You are a new person, a son or daughter of the king. And with God's help, you can live a godly life in this stinking compost of a world. You can be a light in a dark place. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. But you can escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires because that is God's gift to experience God and to escape evil. Well, that's two down. Time to go. What about being fruitful? 
Peter says here, he makes a list of uh, character traits, doesn't he? Did you see that? Faith, goodness. What I really love about this list is that it begins with faith and it ends with love. And what a, what a great way that would be to walk through life, wouldn't it? With faith in one hand and love in the other hand and all the other qualities in between. What a lovely list of character traits that is. What Peter says is, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. If you possess these qualities, which are the gift of God, you'll be fruitful. Your life will have purpose. Peter says, strive with all your energy to be what God has called you to be. So that you can be fruitful. I I think... Maybe you can talk about this afterwards. I think in life, one of the huge fears that we have as human beings is the fear of being insignificant. My life is nothing. I'm unworthy. I'm just a number. Nobody loves me. No one notices me. No one will even remember me when I've gone. That's a huge fear that we have. As I want my life to count for something. Peter says here, if you possess these qualities, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. You'll be fruitful. Your life will be purposeful. Your life can count for eternity. There is a point to it. It isn't random chaos. And that's the gift of God to be fruitful. Number four, uh, seeing clearly. Peter says, that those who don't have these qualities should have gone to spec savers. He says exactly that in verse 9. If anyone does not have these qualities, he's short-sighted and blind. Should have gone to spec savers. And it's interesting how he links clear sight to forgiveness. He has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. It's so important, isn't it, for us to be able to see clearly and the implication there surely is that in Jesus you can see clearly. You can sense what's true. You know the truth about yourself. And you realise that God can handle it and he can handle you. You're aware of your own selfishness, sin. But you are glad that God in Christ forgives you completely and washes you and wipes the slate clean and sets you free to live for him. Can I ask you this morning, have you forgotten that God has forgiven you completely? Have you forgotten that he's washed you? Have you forgotten that he's put you in his family, given you a new place and status? Do you hear, do you feel that little voice on your shoulder saying, you can't be a Christian? Oh, you've done too many bad things. I know. I know how many bad things I've done. That's the whole point. That little voice tempts you to go off and try harder to be good so that God will accept you. What's that all about? That isn't the gospel. When that little voice whispers in your ear, you're unworthy, say, I know. Thanks for reminding me. But Jesus has forgiven me. He's washed me clean. I'm his, not yours. Get lost. And leave me alone. We were looking at John chapter 9. About a man who was blind and Jesus healed him. And the Pharisees and the leaders got him in this synagogue. And they said to him, who did this? Jesus did it. How did he do it? And the man says, gloriously, 
There's a lot of things I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I can see. This isn't about being clever. This is about being forgiven and knowing Jesus. What a great gift it is to be able to see clearly and not hide in the shadows. Number five, avoiding shipwreck. This is another fear um, that human beings have. You know, someone said, you know, life is like climbing up a ladder. And what, a, what an awful thing it must be to get to the end of life and realise that your ladder's been up against the wrong wall. And you've spent all your life climbing and you got to the top and you've completely missed the point. I don't want things to go wrong. I don't want to make a hash of my life. I don't want to not be able to see what I should have seen or not do what I should have done. Peter says here that part of God's gift to you is success in your spiritual walk. What does he say? In verse 10, if you do these things, you will never fall. What a promise that is. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall. He's not suggesting perfection and sinlessness. What he means is that if you are following Jesus, you will not make a shipwreck of your life. It will not end up pear-shaped for you. Whatever happens, he won't abandon you or let you down. Whatever life throws up, he'll be at your side. Whatever decision you have to make, he'll be your helper. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Some people, they never do anything because they're so afraid of making a mistake. But Peter says, if you do these things, you will never fall. You'll experience God. You'll escape evil. You'll be fruitful. And you won't make a shipwreck of your life. Well, if those Christmas presents are under your tree this Christmas, that would be a good Christmas. But there's more. Number six, what about to make it home? That's a good gift, isn't it? In a similar vein, Peter says here, if you do these things, you will never fall. And you, you, shall I say that again? You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You will receive a rich welcome. What will it be to reach heaven and the gates to open, metaphorically? I have no idea what it will look like. And for trumpeters to be lying in the street, and, and for, the, for you, for there to be a rich welcome, come in. Boy, how great to see you. A rich welcome, that's what it says. Peter was looking forward to that. Are you looking forward to that? What a gift of God to you. We don't deserve it. Peter says, if you do these things, you'll never fall and you'll receive a rich welcome. Are you looking forward to seeing Jesus? Or will you drag your feet, ashamed, 
and think, oh, I should have, I should have loved him more. I should have. What was I doing? Wasting time on trivial, petty things. Will it be a rich welcome for you? What a gift it is. Do you believe that you'll make it home? Do you believe that God can protect the little boat of your life as it sails through stormy seas? And that with his help you will make it to a safe harbour? What a gift that is, to know that you'll make it home. A healthy mind. Let's uh, we'll skip chapter 2. We'll come back to that in a minute. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. The first one was good as well. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. That's a great gift, isn't it? The mind is often the place where the battles of life are won and lost. Your thought life is what will shape your behaviour. And to see clearly and to think soundly is a great Great gift. God said in the Old Testament to his people, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. God's thoughts are way, way. Psalm 139, the psalmist said there, if I were the, the, the sum of your thoughts, it overwhelmed him. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the, the grains on the on the sand, grains of sand. Does it say the, the the thought of God, the thought life of God? What a gift to have a mind that is under the influence of God's thoughts, God's truth, God's light, not befuddled or led astray or in the dark, but healthy and clean. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, he said, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's not talking about being intellectual. He's talking about having God's wisdom. There's loads of clever people who know stuff, but it doesn't mean they're wise. Your thought life is so crucial. It's where you evaluate things and make choices and come to conclusions. It's the place where you view the world and other people. It's where you assess yourself. How much our thinking needs to be shaped by God's truth. That's a gift. Peter says, I've written to you to stimulate you to think in a wholesome way. Can I ask you this morning, what, what do you dwell on? When you're on your own and no one else is there, what do your minds run to Do they, do they run to, I don't know, negative, sad, miserable things? Do you, do you wallow in that? This takes effort, doesn't it? This, this takes prayer and effort to stimulate ourselves. To, what was it Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, 
whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is good and right, don't, don't spend your time thinking about stuff that will drag you down. Think about this kind of stuff. <laughs> Think about all the things God has given to you and feed your mind on those things. Here's another one. Hope. This is something we all need, isn't it? Hope. Chapter 3. Um, let me uh, find it here. Verse 12. Peter's really speaking about judgment to come. But he, he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. I think a lot of people find it hard to look forward. It's a big thing having hope, isn't it? I don't really want to think about the future. But you know, a Christian should think about the future. You, you, that's what it says there. Since everything will be destroyed this way, what kind of people are you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Are you looking forward? In the first letter that Peter wrote, he says, you've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You've been born into a living... You haven't been born into doom and gloom. You haven't been born again into misery and sorrow and sadness. You've been born again into a living hope. You have the seeds of life with you which will be growing for all eternity. That's what you've been born into. Hope. We could dwell on that, but we'd better write along. Peace is, is another uh, thing here. Verse 14. Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Andrew and Angela, when they were talking about John Hus, quoted one of his favourite passages in Romans chapter 5 therefore we, since we've been justified uh, we, by, through faith we have peace with God God is not our enemy anymore we're not his enemy anymore there's peace between us because of Jesus Martin Daniels on Friday in our coffee morning was talking about this and he, he was just making a point that we've never had so much and yet we have so little contentment. And he said the secret of contentment really is to know peace with God, isn't it? And the last one, oh no it's not, it's number 10, they still him after this. 10, security. Have I got these in the right order? Yeah. He says, um, at the end of verse 17, he talks about not falling from your secure position. We've touched on this a little, haven't we? The theme of security is a strong in the Bible. When God saves someone, he keeps them. He protects them and he holds them safe in his hand. If they stray, he may discipline them like a loving parent would a child, but he will never forsake his own beloved 
people. We do need to remember, as I've said before, that it is God holding onto us that keeps us safe, not our grip of him. But we do also need to take care, don't we, to be on our guard and not just drift along. The keeping power of God, the security that we have in Christ, should not be an excuse for complacency or laziness, but it should stir us up to guard our hearts and sharpen one another and cajole one another and encourage one another to remain faithful to Him. Not to just say, God will keep me safe, so I'll just drift along in my little boat, laid back, don't need to row. God will kind of, the current will take me to heaven. That's not what Peter says here. He says, be on your guard. Be diligent. Make every effort. God will keep you. But it's important that we're alert and awake. Two more very quickly. Um, Growth. One of the signs of a healthy life is growing, isn't it? And it's no different in the Christian life. And in the very last verse there, Peter says, grow. This is a gift of God as well. Are you growing? Making progress? Are you maturing and developing and changing and learning and making progress? Are you becoming more confident in God and more reliant on his promises? To grow in grace and knowledge, Peter says. That's good, isn't it? There's a talk in there somewhere. If you grow in knowledge but don't have any grace, you'll just become puffed up and think you know it all. If you only grow in grace but you don't know anything, you won't have any backbone or foundation. You need grace and knowledge together, don't you? You growing in grace and knowledge. And the partridge in a pear tree is Jesus. Every single one of these gifts comes to us because for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Look how Peter describes him, both Lord and Saviour. He's the King and the Rescuer. He can save you and keep you. He's to be trusted and obeyed. He's to be loved and followed. He's to be treasured and worshipped. All of this comes to us because God has sent his Son to save us and to bring us into his family. I don't know what you want for Christmas. You can tell me afterwards. But I think that's a fair old list of presents, gifts, privileges that you already own. You know that we've got five kids at home. There's a teacher strike on Wednesday. And all the children were off school. We didn't know when the strike was planned. Uh, But Jane had already planned to go to Liverpool overnight. So all five children off school. I worked from home on Wednesday. And we had a great time at home. Children watched a great film. and, And I was determined not to have a chippy tea. 
you know, to give in to that temptation to do it easy. So I cooked a lasagna for my, for my kids. And it was great. I loved it. They loved it. And then I said a bit later on, I'm not going to tell you which child. I've got five. It could have been any one of them. But I said, it's bedtime now. And one of my children stamped their feet. Massive paddy, tears flowing. Crying, like, oh, I want to go to bed. <laughs> and I said, get up those stairs now. I'm coming to talk to you. I went upstairs and said child, sitting on my bed. And I sat next to said child and said, listen, you've had a great day. You watched a great film. You've had a lovely tea. You've got warm pyjamas. You've got a comfy bed. And what's more, more than all of that, your daddy loves you. And the only thing you can see is the one thing you can't have. And it's made you miserable. Does that sum up your Christian life? The one thing you yearn after that you can't seem to get hold of and it makes you sad and miserable and if you're honest it even makes you a little bit angry inside that you just can't. And you've got it all in Jesus. What's more, more than all of that, your daddy loves you. And the one thing you can't have makes you miserable. Another disciple of Jesus, John, sums this up in 1 John chapter 3. When he says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Dear friends, we, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What a list. Maybe there's someone here this morning and you're not sure. None of these presents are under your tree. And you think, I've no idea what he's talking about. I wish I did. The Bible is so simple and so clear that the way to God is, an, is open because of Jesus. Jesus came, died to save you and to bring you to God. And the way in, the Bible says, is repentance and faith. He calls you to it. He commands you to it. To turn from yourself and to turn to God. Trusting his promise. You can do it today. You can do it now. And Jesus will receive you. And bring you into his family. Twelve things God gives. We've just got a few minutes to just say one more thing. It's probably an introduction to next week more. But there's another reason why my thoughts are drawn to Peter. I said at the beginning, this is really on the back of what we were thinking about prophecy in the last few weeks. Just towards the end of chapter 1, 
Peter speaks about prophecy. What I really want to show to you, I want to encourage you that that the gospel is really on a very firm, strong foundation. And I just have one more slide here. Let, Let me just show you this. Here's the gospel, Jesus himself, in effect. And the foundation pillars for what you believe and what I believe is amazing in the Bible and this, this is where we've been in the last few weeks the prophets predicted Jesus would come and those disciples or apostles saw with their own eyes Jesus come and those two foundations really authenticate one another if the disciples had seen it, but it, hadn't been, it didn't match what was foretold, how can, how can you believe that? And if the prophets had foretold it and then it didn't happen, there's nothing to believe. But if the prophets predict it and the disciples see it, what you believe is based on a very... All those gifts we've just been talking about are all promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And Peter, as a witness is writing this letter for exactly that reason. Look at what he says in verse 16. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Do you know one of the things I hear a lot, particularly from men, when I talk about the gospel, the first question I'll say is, oh, do you know they didn't make it up? Well, that's a good place to go, isn't it? Peter's saying here, we didn't make it up. We saw Jesus with our own eyes and we're telling you what we've seen. And how do we know they didn't make it up? Well, he says in verse 19, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And the thing with the prophets is they weren't guessing. How do you know they didn't make it up? Was it a lucky guess? Messiah's coming, he'll be born in Bethlehem as well as about hundreds of other things that they prophesied about Jesus in great detail. Look at what he says in verse 20. They didn't make it up. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God told the prophets what to predict. Because he knew what was going to happen. And God called those disciples to follow Jesus so that they would witness what was being fulfilled and so that their message would rest on a very strong foundation. Can you imagine what it was like in the first century when they never had a New Testament? They didn't have Gospels. They didn't have all these letters that we've got. They just had Genesis to Malachi. And what does Peter say? Pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rise in your heart. Pay attention to it because it all points to Jesus. And everything that we're saying agrees with all of that. We have the hindsight of both now. It's the same pattern. Just go with me to chapter 3 and verse 2. We looked at wholesome thinking earlier. 
In verse 2, he, he says, I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. It's the same thing. Prophets predicting it, apostles witnessing it. The gospel stands on that foundation. I want to encourage you, there's a, there's a lot more I could say about this, maybe we'll, we'll leave some of this for next week. There are two dangers in 2 Peter. In chapter 2, there's the danger of them being misled by false teachers. And in chapter 3, there's the danger of them being mocked by people who laugh at them. No one wants to be misled or mocked. And Peter says, that, that will be your danger as you live in this world. There's so many people who will tell you what to do and what to believe and where to go and how to live your life. There's people who will mock you for believing in Jesus. The thing that will keep you safe is this. Holding fast to God's word so that you're not misled and so that you can withstand with grace being mocked if that happens to you. But the great encouragement is that what we're doing here even today is so important. We're not just talking about a dead guy from the past. Church is not just a building that you come to on a rainy December morning. This is a living thing that we're doing. The risen Christ, the Lord of his church, gathering his people together. You are part of this story. One of the greatest lies of this age that we live in is that there are no absolutes. There's no big story. There's no overarching meaning or purpose to life. It's every man for himself. Actually, that's a lie. There is a meaning. There is a king. Jesus is Lord. He transcends all of that nonsense. The gospel, the good news, the Christmas message is that Jesus has come to bring light and life and spiritual sight and health into this broken, sin-spored world. This is the God who is kind to people who have failed. This is the God who lavishes his grace on those who call on his name. This is the God who grasps people into a church family. Jesus, binding them together. There is a point to life. There is a point to church. And it's all grounded in Jesus. Peter says, make every effort. Make every effort. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never fall. And you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh,